All right, welcome everyone. My name is Mark Hummel and welcome to Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party. I'm in Berkeley. We're at uh, Magic Dick's hotel room and I'm doing an interview with my friend Magic Dick. Hello. Hello, monsieur. Hello. And uh, Magic Dick, if you don't know it by now, is the original harmonica player in the Jay Giles band the entire time since That's 1968. Right. Was that it? I think so. 68, okay. 67, 68 is kind of when we started. And um, yeah, it's... Okay. And... And what, what we're going to talk about is Dick's career in, in uh, rock and blues. We're going to talk about uh, uh, Magic Dick's beginning in... Uh, uh, now, you were in Pittsfield, Massachusetts? I grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Right. It's a small city. Outside of the, Springfield, is that right? Well, it's, it's, it's basically um, fairly close to the uh, New York State border. Border okay. between uh, Massachusetts and New York, right, and uh, and just kind of how you got started because I know you played uh, trumpet as a youngster. Now, w weren't you like ten or twelve when you started? I was nine years old, so third. It was third grade. Okay, wow. And uh, I was fortunate enough that my parents um, would support me in wanting to play, uh, you know, to take trumpet lessons. I have an older brother named Steve. He's four years older than me, and he started on clarinet. And he was pretty good. And um, we were actually both studying with the same teacher. This teacher could teach like clarinet, trumpet, several of those instruments. And he was a good teacher. So that's how I got my, get, my beginning, and it, it really set the stage for my entire conception, I'd say, of... Uh, a musical sound, a tone, you know, yeah. and the association of uh, breath, you know, with right. the Im the oral image of a musical tone. Now, were your parents uh, musical? Well, they loved they loved music, but they weren't they didn't play music. My uh -huh. my mother um, sometimes sang in the in the choir at the uh, at the temple but they were very encouraging you know as far as uh, what I wanted to do and my mother was always exhorting to me like when I'd be practicing on the trumpet she'd go play sweetly hmm. you know? but her concept of playing sweet was like to sound like Harry James right who to me had way too much syrup in the uh vibrato, you know, of his approach on trumpet. Right. So I ended up liking um, real jazz players quite a lot more, you know. Now, were, your, uh, were, were you and your brother both in, a, uh, in the school band? No. Okay. Well, I was, in a, I was in the school band a bit, but I was more of a loner. I, uh -huh. I didn't really like being that involved in the school band. Yeah. Know? And I also got an opportunity to fool around in the instrument room with a acoustic bass oh, okay. for the first time in my life. Yeah. And that was like, you know, the first time you ever tried something like that, it was pretty uh, pretty cool. But it never went anywhere for me with that. So it, I, I would think that your love for jazz would come, oh, let's turn this off. Mm -hmm. 
just for that's good ding, idea. That's dinging too much. <clears throat> okay. Um, I was going to say, being being a Trump trumpet player from the very beginning, your brother being a clarinet player, mm. I would think that that kind of opened the door for you in terms of an interest in jazz at a pretty early age. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw at a very early age, my uncle Harry, one of my mother's brothers, was uh, took me to see this uh, Chicago jazz band. And he knew all these guys in the band, like uh, Max Kaminsky, Pee Wee Russell. Oh, wow. Bud Freeman. Whoa. Uh, George Wetling on drums. Yeah. And, like, my mind was blown from that. Yeah. You know? What were they and called? They came, when... And during a break, they came over to the to our table because Harry knew them. Now, weren't they called the Over the Hill Gang or they had some kind of name? Well, like some that. of them had, I think, some asso association with that. But I forget what they actually... Yeah, they had all called. met in high school, though, in Chicago. Yeah, I'd that say so, yeah. Yeah, no, they had. And these cats were... Yeah. You know, they went way, way back. Yeah, they um, went back to Jack Teagarden they, yeah. and Big Spider back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, Benny Benny Goodman even hung around them, even though yeah. they, they weren't necessarily. Yeah. And, um, but dur during one of the breaks at this um, club where they were playing, <clears throat> Pee Wee Russell came over and sat down. Now, Pee Wee Russell is a genius on mm -hmm. the clarinet. He is definitely considered a jazz genius yeah. with, with kind of a unique style, his own style. And uh, that was really a trip for me to actually sit as close to him as we are right wow. now. You know? yeah. um, and I just took it all in, like, yeah. loved it. Now, how old were you? Uh, so, so that would have been, you were how old when, the, when you saw those guys? I was about 12. 12, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so you have some... Some stuff that goes way back in terms of uh, an interest in jazz, it sounds like. That's right. And yeah. still have a deep interest and in it. And you do still have a deep yeah. interest in jazz, yeah. yeah. And um, I'm just, I know that with uh, with that, you eventually got into harmonica. Is it, was that in your late teens that you got into harmonica? I started playing the harp when I was 21. Oh, you were 21? Yeah. Wow, that yeah. is so late. That's the first time I, I uh, picked it up. Yeah. Except for when I was three years old, sick with the flu, my mother bought me a Marine Band harmonica, huh. thinking it would cheer me up. Right. And uh, it cheered me up so much, I was jumping up and down on the <laughs> bed. You know, I was jumping up and down on the bed like it was a trampoline. Right. And I could see it like a movie, like right, I remember it so well. Huh. So with with uh, harmonica, now, had you stopped playing the trumpet by that time, or, or how did that go? No, um, I played. I was I was playing the trumpet fairly regularly um, from third grade on uh -huh. uh, until I until uh, until I went off to college. At which point, I was intending to be a, a physicist or a electronic engineer mm -hmm. or a mechanical engineer i loved all that stuff i yeah. loved everything you know and i spent i spent most of my time in the in the in the college library there were several libraries i spent most of my time in the library looking at every book 
Mm-hmm. And not focusing on what I was supposed to be studying. Right. I was just right. looking at every book. And where were you going to school in Boston? Worcester. It was in Worcester. Worcester, Worcester Massachusetts. Okay. Right. At Worcester Polytechnic. Polytechnic. Yeah. yeah which was a great is. Ivy League kind of yeah. uh, small engineering school. Yeah. So Very formative for me. Is this where you that. got interested in harmonica? Yeah, I was. I came when I came home from my uh, second summer school session, because, you know, like I said, I spent most of my time in the libraries and not focusing so much on what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. That translated to having to spend some time in summer school sessions there. Right. And um, when I came home from my second summer of doing that, um, is when it serendipitously happened to me. I just sort of fell into it. And what, how did that happen? There was a music, uh, a music store in town, or a couple of them, mm-hmm. and once in a while I'd go by there and look at the, uh, they would have the, all these harmonicas in a glass display right, case, right. you know, all lit up sure, in there like yeah. that. And um, years would go by and I'd look at them and keep thinking, yeah, but I'm really into my trumpet, but I was very right. attracted to the, uh, to the harmonicas. And particularly the uh, the chromatic, chromatic, the chromatic, yeah, yeah huh. in its various embodiments. And back then, they look the Honer ones look look the same as they do now. Right. You know the the super chromatica, the twelve hole, mm-hmm. and um, so that's that's how it began for me. It it was by chance, really. You know. So do, did you just buy one, or did someone yeah. give you one? No, I bought one. You bought one. I bought one. And how and did you decide what to play? Well, I knew what I wanted to play because I was a big fan of uh, of anybody, any recordings that I could find that were a great harmon- that was great harmonica stuff. Oh, okay. You know? So you already knew. I already about knew people. I already yeah. knew about the harmonicats, for example. Right. You know, I loved Jerry Murad's uh, chromatic playing. Right. I loved that whole group. To the yeah. truth, I thought they were just unbelievable, and there were several others too, but. It wasn't until the blues thing happened for me, mm-hmm. which um, I started playing the Marine Band when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And within, I would say within a month or two, I discovered the, uh, as happens to many players, the uh, the best of Muddy Waters, mm. that recording. Okay. Uh, which was really de- definitive. That redefined kind of blues for me because... Before that point, I was listening to Sonny Terry, who was also really mind blowing. I know yeah, you and I yeah, are, are yeah, like we've talked about that just in, incredibly yeah. incredible interest in Sonny Terry, um, mm-hmm. as have as most harp players have. Mm-hmm. But once I heard the best of Muddy Waters, and then I got the best of Little Walter, I was so firmly into the camp of Chicago blues. Yeah. And amplified harp, and I stuck with that. I mean, yeah. it's you know, but added my interest in in jazz to that kind of a sound. In other words, that's still my interest is that little Walter kind of sound. You know, the amplified harp yeah. sound, which or, almost or sounded like a saxophone. Exactly, yeah, it was between a saxophone type. It was sound. perfectly between a trumpet yeah. and a sax. Right, <clears throat> and um, so that's what I loved and stuck with it yeah and to this day here we are 
And now we were talking yesterday about this this uh, clip of you playing in, what was it, 1965 or 66 or something? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and that was with who? That was with, like, your first band or something? I think... I think the uh, the guys who who videotaped this was in black and white. Right. And we did it in a studio at uh, I think it was at Boston University. Hmm. And at that time, we were becoming good friends with Barry Tashin, mm-hmm. who was the lead singer in the group Barry and the Remains. Diddy Wah Diddy. Right. They they opened for they opened for the Beatles the first time the Beatles played in the U.S. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this was And like, so he played drums, you said. Barry, was, yeah. Barry was a funky R&B drum, huh. drums and blues. Yeah. He'd, sit in, he'd sit in like a, a, an ordinary kind of chair, not, not a drum stool. Right. Probably because there wasn't a drum stool around there right. at the time. So he just sat in this chair, you know, and he's one of the greatest natural drummers with this feel and singers. Barry was such a great singer. Huh. So one of the tunes that 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 we did on that uh, uh, that thing you referred to was uh, Barry sang uh, Laundromat Blues. Okay, Albert King. Yeah, yeah. Albert King. You know, right. it ends with that. One more wash will do. Right. right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And Barry just I I really loved his singing, and anybody I knew, like you know, like Peter. Uh, Peter and Seth, we right. all acknowledged that this guy was incredibly great. Yeah. And a couple of times he came over to where we, uh, where the three of us lived, and um, he came over to sit in with uh, on some jams with us. And this with the early Jay Giles. Yeah, this was yeah. this was a, an early embodiment of the Jay Giles band before Seth uh, joined us. Okay. But on one particular day, Barry came over. And Seth was playing with us for the first time. Wow. We were set up in our living room. Hmm. And Barry jammed with us all afternoon. And uh, later on, he, he said to us after Seth had, had left, later on he said to us, that guy's really good. You should, you should really? get him. Wow. Yeah. So that had something to do with you guys hiring him, I'm sure. He, he certainly that, did. That endorsement. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, so originally the band, the Jig Owls band, was you, uh, Jay, and uh, your bass player. Yeah, Danny Klein. Danny Klein, right. DK, ace on bass. Right. So Danny Klein on bass, who did, and you didn't have Steve and Joe Blatt at that. Yes, we did. Oh, you Steven, did? Stephen okay. was playing. Uh, oh, okay. Well, Stephen was playing with us uh, by the time uh, Barry came over and okay. jammed with us. Interesting. So... That was the the Jay Giles blues band, right? Actually, before we decided to drop the blues name yeah. part of it, and bef- and was that before? Uh, I mean, was it was never the Jay Giles blues band with uh, Peter Wolf? Yeah, it, it was. was for a bit, okay. but we realized, you know, because we like doing a lot of R and B as well as blues. Mm-hmm we quickly discovered that, you know, you would be restricting yourself right. in terms of what, what, they, do, yeah. what people yeah. thought you were, you know. Right. Why not just call it the Jay Giles Band? That makes band, sense, you know? yeah. And now, the reason what? it was called the Jay Giles Band was because 
before Peter ever came along, came along with us, we were a quartet. Mm -hmm. It was um, Jay, Danny Klein, myself, and a different drummer. Named, uh, and at this he, time, you were doing the singing. I was doing some of the singing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were we were doing Chicago blues. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think I was a very good singer at that point, but that's how it started. Well, what I find interesting is that when when I first got hit to you guys after the first album, it seemed, and I was already a big blues nut by that time, yeah. and, and it seemed like your guys' choice of material was kind of almost evidenced like record collectors. Yeah. You know, that you guys were not doing Got My Mojo work and you were doing, you know, uh, John Brim songs or that's you know, right. Yeah, you, yeah. You were you were not doing the typical tried and true that a lot of you know yeah. typical blues bands were. Doing. I remember singing in that in that little session that was the black and white video we were talking about. Mm -hmm. I remember singing uh, "Be Careful." John right, Brim, right, you know? exactly. I yeah. love that tune yeah. still to this it's a day. Great song, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and his voice, yeah. It's the quality of that guy's voice was oh, just yeah. kind of menacing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, um, I mean, th that was one thing that I really dug about you guys, is that your choice of material was was so, um, it was it was so kind of like, you know, uh, there's other bands like that, too. I mean, Can't Heat was obviously very... Oh, they were deep into the deep record. Deep into record collecting, but the yeah. difference is they tended to do more... You know, they did Help Me and they did some songs. Yeah. That, you know, we're kind of more tried and true. Right. Whereas you guys seem to steer clear of that and do, you know, like kind of the, you know, you did Orange Driver by Eddie Burns. Yeah. Just some really obscure stuff that was really killer stuff. Yeah, the Orange Driver thing, That's what, that was after Peter came in. <laughs> right. Peter was yeah. into that. Peter yeah. is an amazing record collector. I figured he was. Huge, yeah. huge amount of knowledge yeah. of all of that. Yeah, yeah. And he, grew he, was, up, he grew up in, in Brooklyn. And he was a DJ? I don't know. Yeah, when, when we first met Wolf, he was um, a DJ at WBCN, which was okay. one of the first underground FM stations right. uh, in, in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the first DJs there. Wolf was a great DJ, still oh, is. Oh, God, yeah. You can tell just from his patter. Yeah. Yeah, his patter is obvious yeah. that he was a DJ. Yeah. Yeah. It's going out to all the ships at sea, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that, you know? That's great. Wolf had a, he had it down. Man. Now, how did you and Jamie? That was another serendipitous thing. Three of us were we're going to Worcester Polytechnic Institute mm -hmm. to become engineers. Oh, Danny wanted, okay. Danny wanted to become a chemical engineer. Wow. Jay wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Yeah. And I wanted to be a physicist. What a trip. So one day I'm walking, one afternoon I'm walking across the quadrangle there and I see these two guys sitting on the grass, one with an acoustic guitar uh -huh. and Danny, it was Jay, that was Jay, and Danny was playing a, a single string washed up bass that he built himself. Wow. You know, the broomstick and the Crazy. and the string. Yeah. yeah, the old style washed yeah. up, yeah. Yeah. So I and I happen to have a a marine band harp in my pocket. Uh-huh. Just like most harp players, right? right. You know. Right. 
And I asked if I could sit in with them. And Jay said, sure, man. That's how it started. Wow. That's, that's exactly how it started. But you guys were all, sounds like all brilliant people. Well, I mean, that's, I'll let you I say mean, that. No, I mean, I'm saying you're, I know how smart you are already, but I'm saying, I know you've told me things about Jay and just his, his knowledge. Of, oh, Jay was brilliant. Yeah, Jay, like a brilliant guy in terms of like he could work on race cars and yeah and amplifiers and and just right kind of anything in the studio right and the, yeah Jay i remember really you told me the thing about him splicing tape that was mind-blowing oh yeah we yeah. you know back then there was no digital editing or right. everything was analog yeah but jay you know that period of time was vietnam war right and we all had to worry about being drafted right and uh, when Jay went for the physical and the yeah. and the mental test, mm -hmm. they told him that he scored the highest on the on concentration of anybody they ever tested. Wow! And I'm not surprised. That's heavy duty. That was like that was Jay. That yeah. is heavy duty. Yeah. He really had the ability to yeah. to focus and think clearly about, particularly like in the studio, yeah. what we were doing, yeah. or also uh, arranging tunes, you know, how to do, you know. Right. He was just Very stellar. sharp, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a gas, yeah. to, a gas to work with, yeah. Jay. And you guys great. seemed like you worked together. I mean, you worked together after the band kind of took a hiatus because you guys had blues time together. That's right. Yeah. How long did that last? Is that like five years or something? Uh, the period of time between yeah. the, when the band, like the band, the Jake Giles band stopped performing uh -huh. in 1984. Oh, really? Okay. And I formed Blues Time with Jay. Uh -huh. I was fronting the band, right. Jay on guitar, and then all the rest of the guys were different. But I formed that band in, um, in 19, I'd say 1990. Okay. I think it was. So you guys had had about six years of not... Yeah. Not really... Were you just not working at all? I mean, how did that go? I was riding my five Italian motorcycles uh -huh. <laughs> every day <laughs> for hours and hours. So there was probably... It was the only thing right. I was doing that right. made me feel like I was going somewhere. Right, right. You know? So I would imagine that you kind of got the attraction back for playing music. Yeah, eventually it came back. Yeah. And, um... So were you guys, when that happened, were you guys just burnt out? Was it just so many well, miles was, on the road? And I mean, I know you guys were basically hitting it really hard from the moment you signed for Atlantic, right? Yeah, yeah, it was intense. But, um, reel me back in here, I'm trying to, talk. oh. Oh, like as far as. as so far I was as, depressed after after the band broke up. You were company. depressed? Depressed, yeah. didn't feel like playing. Um, and that that lasted until uh, eighty until eighty seven, mm -hmm. when uh, Mick Jagger called me up and wanted me to go to uh, Australia with his a solo project he was doing. Right, and that was an interesting. And this experience. is after you guys had already toured with them with the Stones. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we we knew each other. And, right. Um, I always liked him. Yeah. Well, I I, I love that picture that you sent me. Mm. with you and the Stones. Yeah, that's and, a nice and, shot. And, and it's like, you know, I mean, I've talked to you about this before, and I know that when you guys were touring with the Stones, in a way, 
you guys were kind of at the highest point in your career. In a lot of ways, they were kind of ebbing in their career, yeah. right? <clears throat> well, so I'll let you say. I mean, well, I, I mean, I don't I, know, but I just you know. know that I know you told me that when you guys played in Europe with them, that a lot of times, you know, you're you're you guys were the attraction on a lot of those shows because it to be because you were so you know the records were so hot. Well, we had really, that by that time yeah. we we were we were we had just finished a, an intense American tour on the heels of coming up. We had um, freeze frame and centerfold. Mm -hmm. Centerfold was number one on the charts. Yeah. On, number one on the pop charts right. for eight weeks. Wow. That's and serious. that's, yeah. you know. That's serious. I think that's why they wanted us to come over. Sure, and, because that uh, was, yeah, you guys were a transfusion for that. Yeah. 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 I would think so. And how about Love Stinks? Was that on the same record or was that, at a, was that on an earlier record? That's a... Uh, I think there's an album title called Love. Isn't one of the albums called Love Stinks? Well, I know you have the song. I thought it could be, yeah. I think I think it might yeah. be. It gets a little... <laughs> it gets fuzzy, It yeah. gets fuzzy. Well, how many know, albums did you guys do in total? I don't know, maybe like 13 or 14, wow. maybe 15. Some okay. of them were live albums. Right. You know? And basically the first five or six were Atlantic, is that correct? Yeah. And then you switched over to EMI? Correct. Yeah, which was the big shot in right. the arm for you guys. Right, that that was a yeah. good move. And yeah. um, the first the first album on EMI, uh -huh. I think it was called Sanctuary. Right. Yeah. Alexis actually has that. What's that? We have a lot of your guys' records back in my yeah. house. Yeah. Between the ones I have and the ones she has. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I really liked what you were talking about um with the band and how it was such a joint effort in terms of the way you guys con could construct your records, the way you constructed your songs, right. the way you were included on the harmonica in a way that almost no other bands. I mean, one of the reasons that I was, you know, that I was obviously attracted to Jay Giles' band was your playing on it yeah, and thanks. that you were one of the few rock blues harmonica players i had kind of gotten into you guys as a blues group mm -hmm. on the first two albums yeah but you know eventually you guys kind of went into a more rock and roll and and uh, almost you know commercial a more commercial sounding yeah. territory and at the same time it was very much your own thing yeah and um I mean, you were one of the first bands I saw, for that matter. I saw you guys yeah. at the Hollywood Palladium in 73 or something, 74. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, you know, you guys were a great, great live act. We were pretty intense. You guys were super intense. <laughs> really intense. And you guys, every guy in the band had some kind of role to play. And I love the thing that you were yeah. telling me yesterday, which I never knew about, doing somersaults. And your solos. Yeah. <laughs> Wolf was always egging me on to yeah, yeah. Go, go for it, man. Yeah. You know? And I mean that that whole thing, I mean that the, the, the way you describe the band in terms of you know, both the camaraderie and the stage antics and and at the same time, I mean, as any band that's on the road that much, there becomes this point of where, you know, people get there's friction that starts to happen, especially like you were saying between Wolf and, and Seth, 
you know. Yeah, there was friction from day, from day one. Yeah, yeah. And, and then at the same time, here these guys are, they're writing songs together. And that's, yeah. that's such a strange thing to me that people can write songs together at the same time, grow to dislike each other intensely. And it's, oh, yeah. It was, a, it was a miracle, really, the, yeah. way, the way they could uh, work together. Right. Well, Seth, Seth had a lot of patience. Did he? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he was... Seth was super with this stuff. Yeah. The two the two of them had... It was the right combination of a lot of great ideas put through some good filters. Mm-hmm. You know? Would they filter each other's stuff? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Okay. Know? Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, Seth would say something like, you know, that's too much like, uh, you know... Right. Right. You know, something that is just a little too... <laughs> too sugary. Yeah, 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 you know. That kind of thing, yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes it was the other way, too, you know. Peter Peter was really good sometimes at just sort of immediately cutting off an idea. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a lot of the fights would come about because um, certain ideas about a composition or what to do uh, weren't given a full airing. You know, right. if you cut the thing off before you've really explored it, it's kind of not not a great approach. So right. to me, it's miraculous that they were able to uh, put it together that way. Sure. You know, despite the fact that they were like oil and water a lot yeah. of times. You know? Well, it's really interesting stuff. I mean, one of the things that's been really fascinating for me about doing these interviews is this whole thing of the way musicians interact with each other, the way musicians can actually stay together and still, you know, still get on each other's nerves, but stay together nonetheless through a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But eventually it seems to always come to an end. (laughs) It does. I mean, that's almost like just the way it is. Yeah. You know, and and it's kind of like, you know, as you get older, all that stuff seems to change, too. Right. You know, a lot of things change. With well, there were issues, which I don't want to get into, but there right. were issues about the songwriting. Mm-hmm. And uh, Seth bristled at some of those issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's really kind of why it came, it came to an ending when it did. Yeah. You know, and Peter wanted to go off and do his own thing. Right. You know? Right, so which he, is another. So thing he that, basically, you know, Peter happens. basically quit the band. Yeah, yeah. He'll tell a different story, but the right. truth is, <laughs> right, he <laughs> quit the band. Peter, you quit the band. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's again. You know, I mean, this this reminds me of so many other stories of famous bands. I mean, you know, in a way, uh, some of the stuff with Lee and War, Lee Oscar yeah. and War, yeah. you know, similar things where there's infighting and one guy leaves the band and then next thing you know, they're cut out of the band. Right. Right. I know, remember Lee saying something like, they became basically a jam band because right. anytime they tried to actually get together and write some something, there'd always be all these fights. Right. So they just jammed. That's how they became a jam band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's kind of brilliant. Uh, yeah, you know? I mean, so there, there's just there's a lot of really interesting stuff that seems to go on. Yeah, in terms of the creative aspects of of playing in a band, especially, you know, when you talk about bands of you know your or Lee's 
caliber where you know you guys are hit makers. You guys are yeah. There's serious money involved. Yeah. Serious money involved. Yeah, and and of course once you get to that, that's a motivating factor for keeping stuff together mm -hmm. and working through the you know this friction. Right. You know. And boy, I don't know how they did it. Quite honestly, looking back on it, it was stunning. You're saying Keith and I mean uh, Seth and and Peter. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And the rest of us, yeah. it'd be like. So you guys would just be kind of on the outs outside of it in a way and let them do their thing or whatever. Well, yeah. when we would get together yeah. and rehearse, which was damn near every day, wow. you know, work yeah. on work on stuff. Right. Um, it would typically work like Seth would have some ideas for a for a song, and we uh -huh. would start to work. He he would suggest certain parts. Jay, see if you can you know play this kind of thing, and Seth Seth would play it on the organ or the piano. Right. He would play some kind of part, yeah. you know, and he had an idea for the drums and the bass, you know. And my thing was, because the harp is like the frosting on the cake. Right. Although there's lots of stuff where I'm playing like a line or a part right. that is an inherent part of the machine, you know, all this all these parts meshing together. Right, but. Still, the harp is, because of the sound of the harp, it, it's a thing that's on top, you know? It's kind of like the frosting on, on well, a Well, they must have liked harmonica to give you as much, you know, space. Oh, they, space. Were, all, they and, were all, we were all harp freaks. I was going to say, you know, I mean, the, oh, fact yeah. that, the fact that they gave you so much, uh, you know, in, in so many solos in those songs. Right. And the other thing I got to give you credit for, man, is your solos are so inventive. Yeah. No, they nice. really are. I mean, the way you played, you know, a lot of those solos, it's like, to me, it's like, I mean, I hear it on the radio, I go, wow. Yeah, like Mean Love. Uh, there's a whole slew of them that you did that are really, uh, yeah. you know, they're really creative solos. Thank you, Mark. And and very different as, as to what you'd hear in rock and roll. Yeah. You know. And a lot of that... I was very fortunate to be involved in the band the way I was because when we were in the studio or anytime we were working on this stuff, yeah, they were incredibly supportive. I mean, we all worked hard right. on on like if I, you know if the idea was to have a two chorus harp solo or whatever it was going to be, and my harp solos tend to be on the shorter side compared to some stuff that you'd find where people just go on and on and on you know right. like we all like kind of short and sweet right know? um but i had a tremendous amount of support from the guys they were all harp freaks that's, that's every wonderful. one of them every yeah. one of them loved little walter that's awesome Ju loved little walter jr wells james cotton that is so awesome i mean with a thing like that and all the support yeah. i was getting all the help i was getting uh -huh. it was really cool but on the other hand because of the way we worked when we got, we got together to to uh every day to work on stuff work on new tunes mm -hmm. um the process actually kind of boiled down to most of the time me just sitting there in the room listening to what they're doing and thinking about what i'm going to do but i wouldn't be playing mm -hmm. because until they got the back you know until they got the backup together right there wasn't a hell of a lot of point. The about rhythm track playing. and yeah, yeah get the rhythm up. groove. You know, yeah. get all that, the foundation of the thing, get that solid. You know, and I would be recording what they were doing on my uh, 
Sony TC110A, I remember this right. shoebox size cassette recorder that was really a great little machine, you know? And um, so I would record all these rehearsals. Then when I got home, that's when I would actually start to construct your work, work on the stuff. We were talking about the Jay Giles band and the ins and outs of making music uh, when the band really got, well, in general, but when the band really got big, it got, uh, it got much more intense. And, and at the same time, you guys had a certain method to being able to construct songs and put out records. Yeah. And, um, and how much touring, like what was the most touring you guys ever did in one year? Usually the touring would involve like, say, two or three weeks, you'd go to a region of the country. Right. You know, call it a hub. Yeah, the Midwest. And, yeah, yeah, and from that hub. Fly out of that. Yeah, from yeah. that hub you would do it, you know. Right. I remember in the 70s, um, we were flying in Learjets. Right. These little, these little Learjets. Right. That would take off like this, they go, right. I mean, it was like. Did you guys have any close calls? A couple of times in some prop planes, I remember coming in. Was this like an air, private, private? Yeah, okay. and coming in during a storm. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was real cloudy and everything. Suddenly you break through the clouds and you realize you're like this tall, this far above the treetops. It's aye, like, aye. whoa! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be scary. But it was all it was all fun. But I particularly enjoyed the Learjet stuff. I took a lot of photographs back then of um, just you know, I, I I was sort of a a photojournalist at heart. Right. If I wasn't if I wasn't doing this music thing, I'd be a photographer. Now, did you start that in the band, or was that prior to the band? I started as a kid. Oh, when did I was you really? eight, eight years okay. old. I was wow. getting into. Uh, I was given a box camera and a little developing Like a Rolodex kit. or something? No, it was a oh. little cheap box camera, yeah. you know, that took negatives about this size. Oh, okay. Okay, and you'd contact print them right. in this little printer. And um, I just loved that, you know, absolutely loved it. But then, in the uh, starting in 1970, uh, is when I got uh, a Leica. 35 millimeter Leica, which is the... And photo. by this time, you guys had the band going. Oh, yeah. 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 Needed to have the band going to... To, to, buy, a, to, to be able to afford buy, all that To stuff. buy a Leica and carry yeah, all that around. Yeah, yeah, And for a period of time, for a couple of years, I was... Um, I had the the photojournalist definitive thing with, uh, you know, a, a case on a shoulder strap. Right. You know, and, and, the, and the case held... Uh, the the Leica with one lens on it and then mm -hmm. two other additional lenses. So a three lens kit, you know. After not too long, I got tired of carrying all that around and reduced it all down to just one camera, one lens, mm -hmm. you know. And then I got even tired of that and went strictly to a spy camera, hmm. the, the Minox, the little push-pull thing. Oh, wow. You've seen these in movies all the time. Yeah. It actually is an official spy camera. Hmm. But so there you'd be spying on the band? Well, I was just <laughs> I was just the guy who had a camera ready and no this camera was so quiet when you when you fired it, it would just be like Like nobody could hear it. Yeah. Tsk, yeah. Tsk. Didn't even make a click. It was just like, hmm. tsk, tsk. you couldn't hear it beyond a, a foot right. away, you know. 
And the beauty of the thing was, it was a type of camera that you could set the focus to a particular distance, say like six feet, mm-hmm. and you didn't have to find focus it because it had great depth of field. Hmm. Used a curved film plane, which anyway translated to you didn't have to bother focusing critically like you do, you know, with right. your typical camera. So this camera was perfect for swift, unknown shooting. Right. You know, it just, you know. And um, I was good at it. I bet. I'd love to see your uh, well, uh, several, of photos several, several of these shots are on, uh, several of these shots were used in a collage on the two album uh, live thing oh, called, yeah, yeah. called Blow Your Face Up. I know exactly which one you know. That yeah. whole collection of the, on really? the paper sleeves. On, on the inside, yeah. Those are all my photos. Wow, okay, I'll check that out. Yeah. Because I think we have that. Mm-hmm. So um, the other thing I wanted, uh, I forgot to mention, is how you got your moniker, <laughs> and you were Richard Solwitz. Yeah, and then Danny Klein apparently uh, came up. <laughs> you could have been Pittsfield Slim for life. Yeah, and, and what a uh, boring life that would have yeah, been. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't. I, I didn't think Richard Solwitz. All due respect to my mom and dad and my name, right. you know, and um, I'm proud of being rich. I'm Richard South. Of course. That's who I am, you yeah. know. But back then, getting into just build, you know, building, get, getting into this whole music scene, right. it was like... And the blues. And the blues, yeah. especially blues. The blues. There are all these Chicago players who had who had Nick these names. cool names, yeah. you know, yeah. like... Yeah. like uh, well, there's a million of them. Yeah, yeah. Little Walter, sh- Muddy Waters, yeah, Howlin' Wolf. Exactly, Howlin' yeah. Wolf, yeah. They all had this uh, image to right. their... Sunny name. Boy Williamson, exactly. Wells, yeah. Yeah. Bunny yeah. Guy. Yeah, you yeah. got... Yeah, all of them, you know? Yeah. It's like... So, my thinking was, I need a, I need a name like that, you know? Right. And... Uh, so this was this was very I'd say in in 1968 69 uh-huh. Danny and I we lived together and and Jay the three of us we lived together but it was uh one day Danny and I were you know having fun and uh thinking about this name thing and you know different things you know the Pittsfield Slim thing just wasn't, just wasn't, <laughs> even though I had heard of, I think there's like a Chicago Slim. There is a Chicago Slim, and, or there uh, was. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. it just wasn't making it for right. me, you know. So suddenly, Danny had this stroke of genius, genius inspiration. He goes, <laughs> Danny goes, I got it. <laughs> Magic dick. <laughs> and well, your sex that, life was never the same. <laughs> from that moment, from that moment, once once I you know adopted that name, yeah, it just seemed like well, that's it. Yeah, you know, how could it, it not be? Yeah, you know? <laughs> blow your face off, nigga. <laughs> yeah, so the name thing has apparently yeah. served me well. Yeah, but I will tell you this: you know, when we came up with that name, there was no internet. Right. There was no email. Right. There was no faith. None of none so of it's that. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like if you came up with it now. Thinking about it, you yeah. know, thinking about it now, I think more than twice about adopting that name sure. with things yeah. the way they are right. today, you know. 
I've had I've had fans of the blog go. I would never have that name yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Right. <laughs> or women go, what does that name mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just loaded with double right. entendres. And, and it, it has actually been an endless sort of source of amusement. I'm sure it has. Uh, and I, frankly, I totally enjoy it. In the 70s, I remember going into, we were in New York City, and I wanted to get some cool boots, you know. So I went to this... Uh, shoe and boot store in, in New York City. It's kind of an upscale place, mm -hmm. you know. So I walked in there and I'm looking around and this uh, gorgeous uh, sales lady came, came over to me and asked if she could help me. I said, yes, thank you very much. And I explained to her I'm in show business and you know, what I'm looking to look, what, I, what I'm kind of looking for, you know. And she asked me, oh, what's your name? <laughs> I said, my name's Magic Dick. And she goes, boy, I sure could use one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's man. the kind of stuff I get. Jeez, yeah, along, I can imagine, along, along with how I could you ever imagine. call yourself, how could yeah. you ever call yourself that? Man? Right. Uh, or, so, you know, somebody else say like, like if I was talking about putting out a, a, a custom harp of my own or something like right. that, you know, some guy would go, I'd never play a harmonica named, called Magic Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never put one of those in my mouth. You're right. You know? <laughs> so all of it is just, yeah. it's, it's more, re the name ends up being more revealing about the other people involved in that circle. In the band, yeah. Name. Yeah. Well, no, I don't mean the band. Oh. In, in fans, right? Um, in fans, yeah. It's it's yeah. their reaction to it is it's more about them than about right, me. Right, and right, I can get that. <laughs> so now, now, why was Jay? Why was he Jay Giles and not his real name was Jerome? His real name is John. John, okay. John Giles. So how did he become Jay? That just was well from the again, moment. From thing. the moment, Jay, he liked to be called Jay. Oh, okay. And and sometimes J A Y, right? You know. But that got contra contracted to J period, right? For the band name, you right? Know? We were never actually where you'd spell out J right. J A Y right. Giles, you know. Right. The J period Giles was the. That's what worked good. And what's Peter's last name? <laughs> uh, You'll leave I, that I alone. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. All right. But basically, almost everybody in the band had some kind of moniker or a stage name, other than Danny Klein and right. Seth. Yeah. Right. And Seth Steve and just, Joe. Yeah, Steve and Joe. That yeah. was his actual given right. na name. Right. And uh, so three Seth of you didn't, had Seth kind of, didn't use any uh, right. nickname. Yeah. He didn't need to. He was so, he was so cool looking. Right. You know, Seth. He did look like a rock and roller, didn't? He? Absolutely. Yeah, he really did. Seth had a huge amount to do with moving us in that rock and roll direction. Right. Know? Away and, from just the and, strict blues R&B. Yeah. Thing. Right. Yeah. And Peter. And Peter. And an originals probably too. Yeah. 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 And at one point, you guys would write songs together, and I think it would say Juke Joint Jimmy. 
Yes. And I always wondered, to... who's Juke Joint Jimmy? And I realized okay. later, I think you told me that that was kind of your pseudonym for everybody. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, if, if a composition was by the whole band, right. with and everybody, it Juke Joint then Jimmy. it was Juke Joint Jimmy. Yeah. Interesting. Now, there is, a, there is a guy who plays harp and, and uh, plays around with bands. That right. A lot of people know. He calls himself Juke Joint Jimmy. I think I've seen him on Facebook. Sure. I know you were talking about one song where you took a Louis Armstrong song yeah. and worked it up with Jay Giles' band. Yeah. And what was that? I brought that song to the band. I suggested, you know, I really think we could do something with this with this song. It's called I'm Not Rough. Mm -hmm. It was recorded uh, in 1927. Louis Armstrong on um, cornet or trumpet. There was, mm -hmm. was a period there where he transitioned from cornet to trumpet. And uh, it's like, bop, boo, dee, dee. Beep, boo, dee, dee. That, that type of, you know. And his wife at the time, Lil Armstrong, okay, yeah. played the piano. piano. Yeah. And I believe that this tune was her composition. She's, she's credited with it. Okay. I liked what she brought to that whole thing, you know. I don't think she was considered like a fantastic, you know, pianist. But there was something about her. She had whole ideas. Thing. She yeah. had ideas. She had right. the groove, you know. I had this idea that that we could cover that tune and we could transition from the country blues sound that it starts with. Mm -hmm. We could transition to, by the time we're, we're working on the out choruses of it, you know, to have a transition to a more modern thing. Mm -hmm. And the original the the recording that we got the whole thing from, there's a trombone solo mm -hmm. in the recording. And Jay simulated the sound of that, of that uh, trombone, the slide trombone. Uh, he simulated that really great by playing slide guitar. Interesting. And it just worked great. Yeah. Just worked so great. So how did that work in terms of a copyright? Did you guys give the copyright to Louis Armstrong or Lil Armstrong? Oh yeah, it yeah. definitely okay. gave. Yeah. And what was the name of that song? I'm not rough. I'm not rough. Yeah. And that was on one of your later records, right? Yeah, that was on Monkey Island. Right. Okay. Uh, that was still on Atlantic at that point. Yeah. Okay. And speaking of the Atlantic connection, I'd like to talk a little bit about sure. This, actually. Yeah. Ahmed Erdogan. Ahmed Erdogan. Yeah. Ahmed Erdogan was a friend of mine. Uh, not that I I don't mean to say like we're you know like the way right, we're friends, right, right. but but. Ahmet loved me, and I loved him. And he would sometimes come by when we'd be recording in the studio. He'd sometimes come in, you'd see him sitting behind the board, just grooving, you know. He was there when we cut Where Did Our Love Go? Mm -hmm. But Ahmet had, had this thing, he had this groove, and he was a true soulmate when it came to love of Louis Armstrong. Right. So when he knew that, you know, he heard us recording I'm Not Rough, he was yeah. like, man, this is... Yeah, that's cool. Know, he loved it. That's cool. And uh, so Ahmet was very special, you know. Yeah. And then to go from all of that to uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Right, or Cream. You know, or, yeah. all of that, yeah. I mean, was kind of yeah. like, this is a true music man, yeah. you know. Yeah. When Ahmet started, he came from Turkey, I think it right. was. 
Son of an ambassador. And, yeah, and he would travel around with these records in the trunk of his car. <clears throat> right, in the South. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know exactly where, but, you know, he he just was into it. And he well, was, he, was, he was sort of in that same school of, uh, you know, guys like Leonard Chess. And, and yeah. They were all kind of about right. that. Right, you know, King Records or whatever. Yeah, and Amit knew and worked with with uh, Ray Charles. Well, yeah, they were. He, he was con even wrote contracted uh, only, yeah. and also wrote a couple of tunes that Did he? that that Ray recorded. Yeah, yeah. I've heard the story. I've heard about that was that when Ray left Atlantic, that pretty much broke him up, and that he yeah. kind of almost backed out of the picture a little more yeah when that happened yeah well they couldn't atlantic couldn't meet the 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 money that right. was coming from exactly uh, i forget yeah i think he went to abc to. and ray was great no matter he was what great he no did. matter what but i have to say the atlantic <laughs> stuff is just it's some of the greatest yeah. stuff he ever did i know the one that the um it wrote was called do the mess around oh he wrote that yeah wow yeah now the other yeah, thing about Ahmet that that was special. Ahmet wasn't just this record guy who you know had his office. At, right. You know, he was the chairman of the board at at Atlantic. Right. And but Ahmet had this social life. Ahmet went out right. a lot. You know, right. he would come to shows. And what was really special for me was having Ahmet like over here in the wing of the stage. Like watching 20 you, right? feet away yeah, from yeah. watching me. Right. And people in the audience didn't know that Ahmet was standing right. right there watching. And so that naturally gave a lot more impetus to me to, to do. To impress him, yeah. To yeah. just do, you know, yeah. really be honest. Deliver, yeah. Deliver, yeah. you know. Right. And the other guy who was really great too, but we didn't have that much of a relationship with, was uh, Jerry. Uh, Jerry Wexler? Jerry Wexler. Jerry Wexler is actually the one who signed us really? to, to uh, Atlantic. Wow! Now, yeah, that was, did, that was did, one how, of those. That was one of those contracts. That was one of those contracts where you pay to make. Right, records. right. <laughs> there was a, a a record promo guy, right? My love, named, right. we all loved, name named uh, Mario Medias, right? The Big M, right? And Mario was up in. Um, was up in uh, Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what he was doing up there. Maybe he came up to see us. Mm -hmm. We were playing at the uh, the the old original Boston Tea Party. Right. On uh, very historic Sp club. Yeah. 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 It was like a big. It was almost empty... like a Fillmore. Type. Exactly. Yeah. It was very exactly. much the Fillmore of Boston. You know, with the light shows. Yeah. This was the psychedelic era. Right. You know, with the light shows and uh, the right. light shows on the ceiling everywhere. You're right. surrounded. And man, did they do great light shows then. Right. It was fabulous. But so Mario one night saw us perform. And uh, he he told Jerry Wexler about seeing us. He said, Jerry, I saw, I saw this group. You should sign these guys. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's heavy. It was heavy. So he went, went to bat for you. And Mario... Um, as a few years went by, we eventually, after not too long, we were headlining at Madison Square Garden. Jeez! And that was a very, that was a very proud moment for for Mario. I would think Mario Medias. <laughs> the other story I really like is the one about who was the, uh, the the television show that you guys would go on in New York. 
the yeah. Joe Franklin show. Right. Now right. Peter, Peter had been watching Joe Franklin for years. You know, the right. rest of us didn't know about him, but Wolf, you know, growing up in Brooklyn. Right. And it was that kind of show where the Joe, Joe would have these guests on. It was like an early version of the Tonight Show or right. something, but on a much different, le <laughs> much different level, you know. And we, yeah, so we um, we went up to Joe Franklin's show when we came out with uh, Freeze Frame, right? And we did a video where, well, those those of you who have seen this video, you'll see at one point. We're standing there, and we pull a chain. Each one of us pulls a chain, and a big bucket of latex paint, <laughs> oh, that's different right. colors. You know, I have red, seen that. Green, I have seen that. Yeah. Red, green, blue, I've all seen of this. That. Yeah, man. By the what a mess! And by right. the time, by the time we finished doing that, you couldn't clean yourself up there. I right. mean, th this was going to take special work. I remember taking the limo back to the UN Plaza Hotel, which is where we were staying. And the limo was a mess. Black limo, you know, black interior, you know, solid So did the record company have to pay for that? I don't know who paid for it. <laughs> my God, what a mess. To this day, I still have a bunch of this different paint on my soprano saxophone case. Wow. Terrific. Oh, man, it was a mess. I made a total mess of the limo. And the elevator going up to at the UN Plaza right. was covered in this paint. You know, anything you touched. So but that was a very fun thing to do, actually. Yeah. And, well, I bet. Yeah. But that was on his show? Yeah. Wow. And we may have been on his show a couple of times. It was a funny thing to do that. And Wolf, Wolf knew him, you know. So Wolf was all excited about, you know. Joe Franklin getting on the right, Joe Franklin Right, because he, show. Was, he had seen him, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, the other thing I, I, I talked to you about recently that to me is really interesting was just the, you know, and we used it for the blowout T-shirt, was this photo of you playing in mm -hmm. a JFK Stadium in front of like 100,000 people, and I think you said you were headlining. And I can't remember whether we yeah, headlined. I bet, we, I'll bet we were. Yeah. I, I think we probably were headlining, judging right. from the way the stage was set right. up. Because we were we were using the whole stage. Right. You know, if you're not yeah. headlining, you only use part. You're of a it. small part of it, and you're set up in front of somebody else. Okay. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think we were headlining it. So so just that whole thing of, of the you know that transfer of going from club work to stadium work is such yeah. a that's such an intense, you know, change. Yeah. And the idea of playing to, you know, like 100,000 people or 50,000 people, and it's you guys that are the actual draw. Right. That is such an intense thing. And, and, and at the same time, you said you got used to that, and, you, and it didn't take that long to really get used to it. I think I was always sort of looking forward to having that be the case because... I like to use the whole stage, like when mm -hmm. I'm when I'm performing. Yeah. Um, especially when I'm soloing, you know. Mm -hmm. And back then, I wasn't using a wireless mic, you right. know. So I got into this whole technique of, you know, it was a wired connection from the static mic. Right. It was like on a twenty or twenty-five foot cable, mm -hmm. and you know I would 
go back and forth across the stage. And I started, I had to develop this thing of like doing sort of a whipping action with the, with the, with the heart mic to, yeah. to pull the, you uh-huh. know, yeah. to snake the, right. the cord to come along with right. me. You know, I do like a little whip action right. and it would, send a wa- it would send a wave down the cord wow. and it would follow me, you know. So yeah. I had this technique of getting that to, to work right. But then when I transitioned finally to uh, wireless, mm-hmm. man, wireless is it. Now, were you doing wireless by the 80s? Is that, was yeah. that the deal? Okay. I had an early version of a Nady wireless right. system. Right, right. It's a little pack about the size of a right. pack of cigarettes. <clears throat> yeah. In making the transition to using a real good vocal mic, like any singer would use, um, my thinking about it was, and I'm I'm proud of this thought, because this is this shows you how I think about this stuff. It's like the voice, the sound of voice, the sound of singers, became very important to me. You know, as I got more and more into singing and and thinking about this whole idea, so I I had this thought like, if the sound of somebody's voice can move you that much, and it's clean. You know, whatever acoustic sound is coming out of their mouth, and all these singers sound different, yet they can all—they can really move you. You know, there's no gimmickry, gimmickry involved. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like a distortion sound. You know, so I wanted to utilize this idea of a pure acoustic, a good acoustic sound from the harp, and treat it purely into mm-hmm. a vocal, a singer's mic, right? Not a bullet mic. Right. You know? No distortion. No distortion. Yeah. Um, and let, so let, that's that's let, what I love to this day. However, what we're doing now in in, in, right. in this stuff we're doing, I'm doing the old technique of a green bullet into the, straight mm-hmm. into a twin. And that green bullet overdrives the input to that amp a lot. But it really barks. So, I mean, it's another approach, you know? Yeah. And it's a, two different worlds between it's, each of It's those. two different yeah. worlds, yeah. yeah. So I'm back with Magic Dick. This is part three. And um, we were talking about microphones and a clean sound versus a distorted sound. A lot of this has to do with really kind of the genre and the type yeah. of sound that you're looking for. It really does. And, yeah. And it's a kind of a vast subject. It is. Way. Very much. And um, a lot of the recordings that, that I've done with the Giles Band, some of those are pretty heavy with effects. Yes. You know, like, but the typical effect back then would be um, tape echo, slapback right. echo. Right, Now, didn't you tell me that you played out of a really tiny amp for those? Yeah, a lot of it was on a silver-faced champ. Right. But the champ was being, the signal chain was like a green bullet or an ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Those are the typical mics I'd use. Right. Um, into this Echoplex unit. Right. So four channel. Right. You only needed one of the channels, but yeah. it was a four channel Echoplex, which used a tape loop to generate the echo. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I love this machine because it had. It had a preamp built into it. The end result was you could overdrive the input of the champ amp. Right. 
because I didn't care for the sound of the champ hmm. with the mic straight into it. Right. It's like a clean sound on a champ just doesn't make it. Right. At least not on this champ. It did, right. You know. But I found that by using this overdrive technique of of uh, just boosting the signal from the mic. Now, were you that playing would like that a bullet mic? That would give a... like that trumpet thing. Yeah. You would know? you be playing a bullet mic or a? Yeah. Okay. I think I used the uh, the bullet quite a bit. I was going to say. I mean, one thing I've always noticed about your playing in particular is that you kind of have a very defined sound in your playing and a very like in other words you tend to really chop your notes a lot of times I mean I'm not saying all the time but mm -hmm. that you use a lot of uh, technique in terms of crisp a crisp kind of cutoff yeah on um, your notes I think of it as diction right it's like talking it's like speech mm -hmm. you know to me, the, the foundation of a musical part is based on vocalizations. Yeah. You know? Um, and it's not fun to listen to somebody talk who's, you know, talk with, right. you know, it's just mushroom yeah. thing, you right. know? I, I think it was a combination, it started with the trumpet. Mm -hmm. You know, I could, and I learning, could see that. learning yeah. to read, learning to read music and play right. stuff on the trumpet. You know, yeah. here's an aria, play this, you know? There's these exercises, play this. So all of that, those kinds of things were very specific. And when you're working with a, like a trumpet teacher, you know, you'd have the sheet music in front of you and you say, okay, look it over. And this would be something maybe you haven't even seen before. You know, so I'd look it over, you know, you count off one, two, three, and start this piece. And you'd be lucky, with a good teacher, you'd be lucky if you even got two measures into it before he'd stop you. Right. You know? But it was through that kind of focus and that kind of training early on, you know, starting with trumpet in third grade. It was through that that I realized that these rhythm patterns, you know, these rhythm patterns that, you, regardless of the melody that you see on a piece of sheet music, mm -hmm. The rhythm is clearly defined, and you need to know how how to interpret it. You need to know you you need to know how to how a part is typically represented graphically. But you need to know you need to be taught what that means is this. This is how it should sound. Mm -hmm. You know. But you get to recognize things like uh, eighth note triplets. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Dotted eighths and sixteenths, you know. Like a dotted eighth and sixteenth. Bum, ba, bum, bum, bum. You know that. Bum, ba, bum. Those kinds of figures made a big difference to me, you know. And early on, it's like I got hip to this that you got to play this stuff right. You know, otherwise you're nothing. You know, it's just, it's just like... The clarity of how you play, of the, you know, the precision, it takes precision to delineate rhythm. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what it's all about, is right. rhythm and melody, right. you know? And rhythm is supreme. Yeah. Rhythm is more important than any other, is more important than melody. Mm -hmm. Or like if you're playing chords and stuff, if you play a wrong chord, it's a wrong chord, but you can get away with it. Right. But if your rhythm is bad, you suck. 
Right. Nobody can it's play that, with you. It's just that That's simple. That's the problem. You know? Nobody can play with yeah, you. Yeah, so... Which is what made Sonny Terry so amazing. Sonny Terry yeah. is just like... Is that his rhythms were just so... He's virtually and, uncopyable. Yeah, he <laughs> pretty know? much is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that he could play things where he was changing the rhythm like every bar practically. Unbelievable. And still yeah. making it work as a solid... Yeah, straight through a seamless thing. foot tapping right. thing that is like right. wow it's really amazing and all those train train yep. things that he did Lost John and stuff like that Fox, yeah. yeah Lost John is truly That's, amazing yeah really amazing yeah I agree yeah you and I went through a period so we, there where we, we did were go through some really, stuff with that and it was like yeah yeah I mean I, I, I made a point of trying to learn that last year mm -hmm. or the year before and it's mm -hmm. like uh I kind of bounced a lot of stuff off of you and, and a number of other players, you know. Right, and I remember, I remember we were talking to, I was hipping you to this thing of that, and you had commented about it, that when you start working on Sonny Terry stuff, if you haven't really gotten into it, but tried to play it before, right. you begin very quickly to realize that the entire breathing pattern, the entire process yes. is very different from Chicago style. Huge. It's almost it's, like it's, it's just like it's really in a different time signature completely. It's yeah, it's just yeah. completely it's almost on the one and the three instead of the two and the four yeah. or something. It's just yeah. really something yeah. else, you know. It is something else. And if you're not used to it, that whole thing of getting your body to breathe that way right. is tricky. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So um, I'm just curious, what would you say your favorite song from your career would, would be? I mean Obviously, Whammer Jammer is the song that was kind of your, mm -hmm. you know, signature song. And, and, and I remember, you know, back in the day when I first heard you, that was a song that every harp player that was serious kind of yeah. had to know how to play that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like become a litmus test. <laughs> right. You know? If you can play that, it's like, yeah, that's your, yeah. kind of your pass. But it's not my favorite. Right. You know, right. I feel very fortunate to have a song like right. that that's associated with me. But all, what goes along with the Whammer Jammer thing is the high note stuff. Right. You know, and the in a bands, sense, yeah. you know, to be known for that high note thing right. as, as a form of recognition, you know, mm -hmm. like you hear that and you're, oh, yeah, it's Magic Dick. Yeah. You know? Of course, I got it from Jimmy Reed. And sure. Yeah. I got it from Jimmy Reed. Yeah. And oddly enough, from John Coltrane, too. Right, right. But the Whammer Jammer thing has become, like I said, I'm grateful to have it. It's something that I perform most of the time. Right. Uh, but it's not my favorite. Right. It's it's sort of more obligatory. Yeah. Now. Well, that's what happens when you get popular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You're stuck with those songs. But... My favorite is is more something that I sang actually. I did a a, a rendition of "Fool That I Am," hmm. which which I was inspired by Etta James doing right. it, and yeah. she got it, I believe, from Dinah Washington. Right. But so my singing of "Fool That I Am" was for me a great success. When I hear myself singing that, and other people have commented on it, mm -hmm. it's like, man, I can sing, you know, with real, with real feeling. You right. Know? It's not just like doing 
be careful, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so that that recording stands out to me. minutes from now I'll think it's all I should have said right you know because it's hard to pick out a favorite from all of this stuff right but I don't I wouldn't say necessarily that the favorite has been the guile stuff although in total because of the way I developed this style of playing with the band Mm -hmm. in total that's a a big deal for me right you know even like like give it to me for example right you know give it to me where the harp is going, da 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 da. Right. You know, and I'm playing that squawk yeah. sound. Yeah. And again, it's very, it's very meticulous. Meticulous, rhythmically yeah. very defined meticulous clarity. Playing on yeah. It. Yeah. That squawking sound, I use that a lot in my style. Do you? And that comes from John Lee Williamson, Sonny Boy. Okay. Long. All right. You know, Interesting. Junior yeah. Wells uh, yeah. also used that stuff a right. lot. Right. You know. Yeah. So that became that became the element of blues playing that I've used kind of the most with the Jay Giles band. Mm-hmm. That that squawking sound combined with lyric lines. Right. Um that was a, that's a hallmark of my sound and my style. Right. You know, I owe that squawking thing to to Sonny Boy One. Right. John Lee Williamson, who was a genius. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and and one of the most pro- prolific songwriters ever. Yeah, it's so yeah. many songs. Yeah, so sure many is. great recordings, and so many songs that are that have become, you know, like Tampa Red's another one that, mm-hmm. that these two guys, you know, Bill Bronzy, that all these guys really kind of came up with the architecture for what became '50s Chicago blues. Yeah, and that everybody borrowed off right. of their styles. Right, and using the drum yeah. kit. Was John right. Lee, you know, exactly. those sessions with John Lee yeah. Williamson yeah. Judge started you started yeah. using drums, right? Piano, drums, right. acoustic bass. It was really the first, you know, uh, electric blues bands. In yeah, a sense, and there's, they had electric guitar. They had they're astounding. Know. Yeah, still to this day, I love that. Yeah, Just I do too. It. I know. Yeah, I mean, I look at those as the the architecture. For, yeah, for the Muddies and, yeah. and Little Walters and. All the guys, and now some of those lyrics, like you know, some of those songs, like "Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl." Right. Well, you can't. Re- you can sing it today, but 
you probably shouldn't. Yeah, people think you're a pedophile. <laughs> you know? And there's a whole lot of them like that. That's you know? right. Yeah. You know, yeah. elevator woman. Right. You know? Elevate me, mama. mama. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's but the a lot of stuff is, in Berkeley you'd get in big yeah, trouble for. And, and, but they have this um, poetic imagery that is superb. Yeah. Absolutely. And both, both, both of those Sonny Boys, one and two, were absolutely brilliant poets. They were. They were as great with words yeah. as the music. Yeah. There's one I recorded called Good Gal that I oh, yeah. love the lyrics to, and I yeah. love the way he the way he sang it. And at the same time, I mean that song is really the it's the the, the predecessor to Can't Hold Out Much Longer by Little Walter. I love that one. That man. whole that all that whole melody is is taken from that. I wanted to do Can't Hold Out Much Longer on yeah. this tour we're doing. You could do it. Um, I found I had to really lower the key like right. quite a bit. Right. You know, this whole period that we had because of the COVID thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't been, I haven't played for like two years. This is the first time I've been out right. in two years, you know. And I found that my voice has gotten deeper. You know, I, right. I can't sing as high in my range as I used to. Right. Uh, and I, I had been thinking, well, just keep vocalizing, just keep working on it, it'll come back. You know, a lot of times you can extend your range by really working on it right. methodically, you know. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't extending in the way that I was not thinking that it well, was, you know, know I'm not the sure. Other thing, the other thing that Brown and McGee told me a long time ago is he goes, I was singing your key. Mm -hmm. He goes, don't don't try to sing in the original key if it don't fit you. Yeah. And, and that's great advice. It really is great, great it's advice. Ex it's extremely important advice. And it took me a long time. It took me until now, yeah. really, to start really getting serious about that advice. Right. You know? Right. And picking songs that feel yeah. right for your voice. Yeah. That's yeah. really, really important. It's huge. Because you don't want to be reaching. No. Although... I like re Gaye. I like reaching for stuff. There is stuff like yeah, Marvin Gaye. I like give reaching an for stuff. Yeah. There is a stuff like when Marvin Gaye does "Stubborn Kind of Fell." Right. You know, whoever produced that record had him singing way up. Had yeah. him singing high. Yeah. Because the effect of straining for some of those right. phrases. It sounds good. It adds. It can sound it good. It adds a lot yeah. to that That's thing. Right. You know, where he, it makes he, it sound real. Yeah, and where he's That's what almost not quite making yeah. it. You know? It makes it sound real. I, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I get real tired of kind of in today's music scene is this thing of perfect melismas and, and all like... Yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, that's really... It, it's kind of kind of kills the whole idea of melody. Yeah, you know when you get too twirly with the vocals. Yeah, I'm not big on on a lot of that. Although, if I were better at doing some of that, I yeah. might feel different. I'm, I'm sure. You yeah, know? I'm um, sure. It's nice to be able to whip off some yeah. curly cues. It's nice to be able to do it when it's needed. Yeah, but, but it's, it's not something I yeah. focus on. Right. Uh, exactly. I'm I'm happy if I can just deliver the song. Exactly. In fact, and, I find the and that's more, really what it's about. I find that the more I focus on directly communicating to the audience the song. Yeah. You know, what is this song? You right. know, get get into the lyric and and deliver it in such a way that it it's a spontaneous presentation, even though you've done it many many times. Right. Right. Each time it needs to be fresh. Mm -hmm. Even if you know it's stone cold, you have to make it fresh every time. And that's just getting into the lyrics. 
when that's being sing. in the moment yeah, with it. In the moment, you really got to be in the moment with the song, yeah. and you got to be in the moment with a couple of these people that are in like the first couple of rows right. that are like, yeah, man, you know. And that's fun. That is the to fun me, of that's it. fun. And once it becomes yeah. fun, then you do much better. That's right. You know, yeah. if you try to make it being too self-conscious, will oh, it's the worst. It's the biggest enemy of yeah trying to perform exactly. And we and we've talked about this yeah. where like the moment any doubt creeps in. You're dead. You're dead. If That's you start, right. if you start worrying, okay, I got this phrase. If you start worrying about if you're going to hit that note, you're dead. See, but to me, <laughs> one of the things that's really fun about, especially the blowout shows in particular, is having these artists on it that everybody is kind of like you're having to follow people that are putting the yeah. definitely putting the pressure on, and at the same time, it's really fun to try to kind of top. What, whoever you're following, and and it doesn't yeah. mean that you're topping them. It just means you're 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 keeping up. And it's keeping your focus. Keeping on your, your focus. Thing. Yeah. yeah, I was. I wanted to tell you, by the way, um, earlier when we were talking about this, that this whole thing that you've been doing for thirty years now with the blowouts, yeah. this being the thirtieth annual. Yeah. The more I've done these with you, and we've done quite a few together. Yeah, we've done. The more I've done of these yeah. with you the more I realized what a brilliant idea it was for you to, to do this. Well, thank you. Because harp players learn so much. All musicians learn from each other. That's right. And and put together in this particular way, where one guy's following the next, uh, the re a review. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, It's every kind night, of old school, really. It is old it's school. It's old school, yeah. It's old school. Yeah. But it, like... It's a way of putting the pressure on you in an essential way. Right. Because somebody just went out there, did their best, and you go, damn. You know, I and it's like, him. What, the, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do now? Yeah. You know? But the funny thing is, you know, I get myself into a place where I go, we're all different. Yeah. And that's really where I go is I go, we're all different, and mm -hmm. every one of us has something right. of our own that we can put into it and contribute right. that makes it still relevant. Right. And that's the important, because everybody is on a certain level. Oh, yeah, these all, these, all these yeah, guys. There's nobody great. that's a slouch in this thing. I love a yeah. Aki. Is a like, Aki's awesome. Man. Yeah, he's really awesome. That guy has really come yeah. along. And like, John. And yeah, everybody. John Nemeth and, and, and Sugar. Everybody. Yeah. They're yeah. real strong in yeah. what they do. I and, agree. Um, yeah. It, it, puts, it can sometimes put me in a place of like, oh, man. You know, like, well, you're doing great, though, man. Thanks. You're doing great. But, you know, you get, like you were saying, it's like you have to get to a point where, like, it doesn't matter what they did. That's right. And that is the point. You know, it doesn't that matter what point. anybody else did. Right. All that matters is is you have to communicate when you get out there on stage. That's right. You can't just be in your own little shell no. and yeah, I'm gonna blow and do my no. thing. No, you have to put it out. You have to put it out to the audience. And that's what all these guys do. They right. really put it out. Right. And this band you have, man, you have the best mother bands. <laughs> Thank you. Man. And well, Wes, Wes on drums. I've made a real point of trying to trying to really build it up over the years, you know, to 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 have yeah. a band that can cover everybody's stuff. It's fantastic you know, what these guys is. can do. Yeah. And Wes on drums. Oh yeah. Is honest, honestly, yeah, Wes, Wes is the best blues drummer I've ever is. played with. Yeah. And he's a great roots drummer. He yeah. can play anything. He can play swing, he can play jazz, he can play country. 
He can play yeah. rock. He can play yeah. it all. And yeah. he's got an unconventional way of playing totally the drum. unconventional. He's a true joy to work with and to watch. Yes. All these guys, you know. That's right. Anson, 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 yep. on, uh, Anson yep. and, 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 and Bob Welsh. Yep. Man, yep. I haven't even heard one millionth of what these guys can do. Randy Bermudez. Yeah. yeah. They're all great. They're all wonderful, yeah. man. They really yeah. are. And Nobody's... every time I've played with you, with, and you've had different guys. Right. You know, every time, it's been really great. But I think this current aggregation oh, yeah. is maybe the best. It's a great, great group. It's really fun. You yeah. Know? I'm happy as a pig. <laughs> you know? Thanks for coming out, Dick. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, yeah. Mark. And you're you're a real good guy to know, and uh, I, I've, it's it's great because we got a lot closer, I think, over the, uh, you know, over COVID. Yeah, we and really did. And the fact that you you said to me after the last blowouts in 2020, you said, if you ever want to, you know, learn about music theory and chromatic and stuff mm -hmm. like that, I'd love to help you. And and uh, and it's been really cool to to develop our friendship a lot more. Yeah, you know, as it a really result has. of that. And we've talked so far and, we've and talked wide about, about so much stuff. Everything. Yeah. Books, yeah. movies. Right. You know, uh, right. Well, and I, you're, I, you're an incredible uh, movie, a film buff. I am a and, film um, buff. And I now. enjoy yeah. movies, but I'm not at right. the level you are. With no, I'm stuff, ridiculous. You know. I probably watch one, one every other day. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, what happens with me is I'm channel surfing, you know. Right. And I'll see something come up, a movie. Right. I don't care if it's like... What I like to do is, like, if it's in the middle of some movie, yeah. I like to guess exactly where in the full length of the movie is it. Right. And you can tell from, right. you know. That's a fun way to watch movies. And most of the time, I'm really spot on with, right. like, this is a quarter way into this movie. Right. Or this is at the two-thirds point, right. you know. No, it's fun to kind of find movies again that you've seen before. Yeah. I watched one the other day like that. It was like I, I had... I had not watched it in a long time, and I was like halfway in, and I went, wow. Yeah. I think it was the movie with Adam Sandler where he plays a jeweler. What was that called? Oh. It's a hell of a movie. He's, he, Adam Sandler. He's got to be really good. He's a very decent actor. He's man. a very decent actor. You know, yeah. the times that the times that uh, the Giles, you know, when we worked with him, you know, where he has a band on the set. Uh-huh featured in some of his movies. There's right. this whole series that he did. Right. Where, you know, parties at his house kind of thing. You know, we did one of those. Did you really? Wow. Yeah. I, I forget know. what it was called. Uh, huh. Uh, I know it the moment I hear it. I just uh -huh. stopped thinking, oh, it's it's on a lot. Is movie. it? Yeah. And um, that was the Giles band? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, but during that process, I got to... Um, I got to watch him in action because he directs his movies too, hmm. you know? He's quite a, f a film guy. Yeah. Sounds and he directs them. And um, watching him give direction to an actor, I learned from watching him do that that this guy knows his acting stuff. Yeah. You know? He knows how to make suggestions about, you know, or how to say something. Right. You know? And that's it's kind of the like thing. being a good record producer. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing of being a, a, a decent actor is it's like being a musician. Yeah. You know? Very much. S -s Nuance really matters. Right. Really matters. And underplaying sometimes. Yeah. Instead of overplaying. Yeah. 
Yeah. So he's he's yeah. like silences. Yeah. There's so many different. And you wouldn't things. have known this like the first time I ever saw him was on Saturday Night Live. Right. And it was you totally know, he's different. Just this crazy yeah. guy. You 